A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 177 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zoom, as well as Stitcher, and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at SW Beyond Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Herleman, and with me like a muted droid, the EU guru himself, the Count of Continuity, Mr. Nathan B. Butler. Uh-huh. Oh, I'm not supposed to be muted? You see, you see what I did there? Good. Good. I did. It took me a second. I was trying to go, oh. I was like, like a what? Fine. I just won't unmute it then. <laughs> nice. There you go. Uh, so, you can't hear me cry. Over the end of Dark Disciple. My God, I cannot wait for us to have a chance to talk about Dark Disciple on the show here. Oh, man. Yeah, we were, uh, you know, full disclosure for you listeners, we were just talking about it beforehand. And woo! Are you guys in for a treat? Yeah, it's looking like what we're going to be seeing here for the next few episodes, folks, finally, is some more new canon stuff. Some pretty heavy stuff, though. We've got Lords of the Sith coming up. We've got uh, Star Wars number one through six, Skywalker Strikes coming up. We've got Darth Vader one through six, simply entitled Vader coming up. And hopefully by that point, Mark will be done with devouring Dark Disciple and we'll have a chance to actually talk about that as well. So expect us as we're sort of continuing on with some of our older Legends topics that we've been talking about in this episode, like we did last episode, we'll be circling back around. You'll see a lot of interweaving between new story group based canon stuff and older Legend stuff as the saga of Star Wars Beyond the Films continues, as we've said before, is to be expected, but... Up until recently, there's only been a few of those more canon-based episodes because there's only been a handful of things to talk about. Now we got some comic arcs finally coming to an end. Princess Leia is coming to an end soon, too, so you'll see yeah. more of that in the near future. Which is why I take such issue with people calling new canon stuff EU. I'm like, come on, no, I'm still talking about EU, not the canon! Well, again, it's just, it's that old thing, you know, the term EU really caught on as Expanded Universe once Star Wars started to heavily use it, and now it's just used in general for anything that is not in the movies, anything that is a spinoff of any sci-fi franchise. Of course, Star Wars doesn't call it that, but I don't think that the sci-fi community in general cares. They're Surprisingly, just like, you as they see fit. That's become like one point of contention between me and my wife. Like I, I'll call everything that I used to call EU now Legends, and she just gets pissed. Oh, I'll never call it that. I'm like, for, for discussion's sake. <laughs> wow. So we're continuing on a topic that we talked about last time. So, Mark, what are we talking about? Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. 
This episode, we continue to explore Volume 7 of Knights of the Old Republic, the comic series by John Jackson Miller and his team from Dark Horse Comics. Only this week, we're going to cover the second half of the trade paperback, this episode covering all three parts of Dueling Ambition and the covers. Now, consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentients of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. That's right, folks. Now, this... Trade Paperback includes issues 36, 37, and 38, which we covered last time, Profit, Motive, and Faithful Execution, and then Dueling Ambitions, which is issues 39, 40, and 41 that we're talking about this time. It is volume 7 of the Knights of the Old Republic Trade Paperbacks entitled Dueling Ambitions, so it's named after the third of the arcs that are in it. You can actually find the first couple issues of this in volume 2 of the Knights of the Old Republic Omnibus series, but then the rest of these are in Omnibus number three. The trade paperback is basically split, although the story arcs are not, if that makes any sense, okay? So you can get Faithful Execution and Dueling Ambitions in Volume 3, but then if you want to get Profit Motive, it's actually the last story in Volume 2 of the Omnibus editions. The Omnibus splits it. Hmm. And again, this is a three-issue story arc. In this case, it is again by John Jackson Miller with art by Brian Ching, the regular artist for the series, finally coming back here and in the last two story arcs, there were really sort of fluff stories, but the key hints that are being, being dropped of things to come are that Zane was somewhere for a few weeks. We don't know where. It's not revealed here. And Jeriel, or Jeriel, we found out the pronunciation, Jeriel apparently is Force-sensitive. It's not a hint. It's not a trick. It's not her pretending to be a Jedi this time. She actually is Force-sensitive and has been able to consciously use the Force in a minor way. So there's this question of, okay, where is that storyline going? We also have Roland quotes around his name because we will find out later that's not really who it is. Uh, Roland has seemingly become a different person since Flashpoint. He seems very unusual. He seems to have heavy medical skills, and he seems to be outright obsessed with Jarrell and with her Force abilities. In fact, he's the one who suggested to her that she may even have the Force to be able to use back when they were needing an escape in Profit Motive two story arcs ago at the beginning of this trade paperback. So, seeds are being planted. I've made the comparison that these stories, this trade paperback is a lot like Season 5 of Babylon 5, and that the big story has been done with Vindication, and now it sort of seems like it's all sort of back to square one in some respects, picking up just a few minor threads as opposed to being the biggest, which was the whole conspiracy thing uh, with the Jedi Covenant and all. But it is building up towards another big payoff at the end of this series. Only in this case, not 35 issues or so towards the payoff, only more like 15. So it, it's a different time. It's a different era of Knights of the Old Republic, and it's one that uh, there's, there's some question as to whether or not the series should have continued going into this era, or was it going to get deeper and be as bombastic as Vindication if the series wasn't cut off at issue 50, like was announced around this time. There's kind of a lot of things up in the air about whether or not this series is able to live up to its previous story arcs in the current ones that we're looking at. And one thing I like is Zane's kind of coming to his own now. He's no longer a Jedi. He's trying to find his way. You know, the first half of this Volume 7 arc, we kind of found he was out doing his own thing. This point, we're kind of seeing more what he does for kicks. Uh, and, and I thought that that was the interesting side of his character. I mean, this whole dueling ambitions arc is more him seeking out some fun 
and it eventually morphs into being an actual mission where he's got some things that are, are required on him, people that are counting on him, and a lot more becomes at stake. But it started out as just a way to let off some steam and to do something that was a once-in-a-lifetime o- opportunity. In a sense, Zane Carrick's going to Star Wars Celebration Anaheim. Well, it's a story about sports in a lot of ways. It's the American gladiators, or the running man, depending on your point of view, of <laughs> this particular era. It's an American ninja warrior in space. Because what you've got is this sport that this centers around, which we'll talk about momentarily, that is essentially swoop racing meets elimination combat uh, meets slavery. It, almost an old Roman style, like takes super... Uh, science fiction elements of futuristic things like swoop bikes and the like and blasters, but then add in the whole slaves fighting for entertainment type of combat aspect of something like the Roman Empire, and that's kind of what you've got here and becomes the underpinning of part of this story. So we start in the middle of one of these combat matches where we see the Gothal known as Gothar Klieg basically kicking butt and winning the solo aerials for the fourth consecutive time. And in the process of giving his speech that is supposed to be uh, his big, you know, uh, uh, thank you all for coming, you know, I am the champion type of speech, he reveals that he's planning on retiring, and he tries to get out a message that basically says there are slave pits, right? That is where a lot of the lower level racers come from in this sport. It's a horrible situation. It's horrible in terms of the way that they are treated, it's horrible in terms of the lack of rights for these people, etc., etc. Someone needs to do something about it. But the company that basically is over all of this controls not just the races, but also controls the message and what gets broadcast. And they just cut out his speech and play a pre-recorded one that already exists. Nobody gets to actually hear what he was trying to say. And that sets in motion a need to punish Gothar uh, on behalf of the bosses. We get a good explanation of what's going on with this particular new sport. Uh, The narration says, even in wartime, sports are a big business, and few sports in the Republic are larger than dueling. What had been a blood sport run by crime lords went legit and galaxy-wide when investors saw opportunity in a less-than-lethal circuit run by the gaming-obsessed Krish. Savvy marketing created superstars, attracted sponsors, and gained full legal acceptance, even as the league itself successfully lobbied for laws against competing in more deadly circuits. By the outbreak of the Mandalorian Wars, the franchise, that's with a capital F, ruled the dueling universe. And as its capital, Jervo's world. Jervo, that should sound familiar, that rival that Griff has come up against a few times. He is going to be a rival that's behind the scenes in this. Losan Industries' amazing network of arenas above Pantolomon. Adding an aerial dueling division to promote its swoop bikes, Losan gave the sport a rabid new fan base, and one willing to travel. And we pick up basically with Jarrell and Zane arriving at Jervo's World, this space station gambling place, and absolutely freaking out, at least in Zane's case, because he was a huge fan of all of this. He grew up with Gothar Klieg, the guy that we just saw, as one of his role models because he didn't really have role models within the Jedi Temple, which kind of says something about Zane right there to a degree. And he, he basically talks us through the sport that basically uh, you've got to take out your opponents in order to advance. But if you sit still, you're a target. So it's racing on swoop bikes, fighting against enemies, sometimes on these dragon things, sometimes on the ground 
Uh, it's a free-for-all. You're not really supposed to team up, per se, so you never know who's going to be your friend, who's going to be your enemy at any given point. It's sort of the enemy of my enemy is my friend at times. And whoever are the two left standing at the end of any individual round move on to the next round. And it's all set up with these little uh, energy wristband things that they're wearing so that when it reaches a certain threshold, energy weapons shut down so that it all stays safe. And in theory, no one is supposed to die during all of this. So it's kind of an interesting, uh, or supposed to be non-lethal sport. And while they're there watching a match and talking about it, Griff shows up, and Griff is there undercover as a supposed inspector, because what he's figured out is that the Krish and all these people working for uh, the franchise, they are placing bets all throughout any of these matches, including while they're still happening. It's not place a bet, then the match, and then uh, see you know, how the winnings turned out. It's place bets during the match about things like who will throw the next punch, and so forth. And there's a very, very slight delay of only a few seconds between the actual arena and the video feeds that capture what's happening in the arena finally being played back for the spectators. So the thought is that they could use that to bust this operation and make quite a bit of money in the process. Zane, for his part, finds something that he would much rather do, which is that they are offering a Gothar Kleej, Gothar Special Swoop Bike as a prize for whoever winds up winning the amateur version of this sport, and you can just sign up to do it. So Zane signs up and basically leaves Griff and Jarrell kind of hanging behind. Jarrell says, you know, this is the second worst date I've ever had, because um, in theory they're supposed to be working together, uh, or are supposed to be out there together, and Griff, for his part, is annoyed because they actually have made the point of aiming for someone they can they can hurt with their scheme that actually deserves it, like Jervothalian, as opposed to it being just sort of, you know, random financiers and whatnot who are innocent to a large degree, like what happened back in Profit Motive. Unfortunately for Gothar, he's basically being beat up by Bardron, who's the guy who's running things for Jervo at the races and whatnot. He's like, yeah, you forgot your contract. You forgot what you were supposed to do. You weren't supposed to give that kind of message, and we made sure that nobody could hear your message anyway, etc., etc. So we're just going to knock you back uh, into you know, the lower ranks and whatnot, but actually we got something worse for you. We took your son, uh, Aubin, and we've dropped him in there. You've talked about how he's not ready. Well, pfft, too freaking bad for him as a way of basically forcing Gothar to jump in to the games again and continue making money for them, they've put his son in danger. And they make a deal. A deal that you never expect Bardo to actually follow. But it basically says, look, so here's what happens. Let's say both of you win. You and your son, you go free and you can retire for real. But if either of you loses, you're in for life. No more games. You never get free you are their property, going to be running in those games until you die, essentially. As for Zane, he does manage to do very well uh, in his part of the competition, but again, he's leaving the others high and dry. You've got Jarrell just kind of sitting at a bar, drinking or not drinking as a case, maybe, just kind of staring off into space, and uh, out pops Griff, who's hiding in a plant, saying, 
Psst. I've been calling down winners to you all day. How much money have we made? None. I didn't place any bets. And he just freaks out and starts ripping the plant apart. You're killing the plant. It was first in line. Like, he's going to kill somebody else. Um, <laughs> but no, because other people are fighting on these things. That she's not willing to. There's something up with Jarrell that's causing her to not be willing to place bets on this, knowing that there are slaves as part of this process, it seems. Um, and they together are worried about what's happening with Zane and his lack of focus. But hey, the kid's only 19 at this point. Um, she's not quite sure what's going on because she doesn't feel like it's fun on the hot prospect anymore because Roland is constantly nagging her about trying to use the force and Zane is really the only person not pushing her to of all the people you would expect uh, in that case. Roland, for his part, has stepped out of the ship to try to go see what's going on because it took Jeriel so long being away and he has been grabbed by local police who believe that he is a Mandalorian who may be a spy and whatnot. And they're like, no, 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 he's not actually a... Uh, it's just a gimmick. It's a novelty act. He's actually a... Uh, he's a swoop writer. He's a duelist. Uh, he wants to jump in there. It's its all a get-up for that. It'd be like, you know, if a NASCAR racer tried to drum up support by, I don't know, dressing like a Nazi. Um, but it's going to draw a lot of media attention. So not only is Zane in the competition... Now, so is Roland, and if they can change his armor up just a little bit, which is what they're doing, so it looks very showmanship-like, then the thought process is that he can now wear his armor out in public in the Republic and not be thought of as a Mandalorian. People will recognize him as, oh, it's just that gimmicky swoop rider guy, and he's actually going to be able to move around a little more freely than he previously could. Um, the issue ends, the first issue, as Gothar introduces himself to Zane. Zane is all like, oh my gosh! You're my hero! That's so awesome! But Gothar basically just throttles him and says, Look, you know, uh, my kid's in there. This dream is over. You are going to help my child stay alive. If you don't, I'll kill you. Dream's over, Jedi, and so are the games. Bump, bump, bump! An interesting issue, mostly set up, has some good funny moments, a better arc work than we have been seeing. So far... We don't have a feel for how this is going to fit into the broader arc yet, but there's still two issues to go. Yeah, it's a classic Zane Carrick look. You're waiting for the other shoe to drop. I think for me, the thing I like the most about this isn't just that it's setting up everything for what's coming, but it's Zane's reactions and then the reactions everyone else are having to Zane. You know, like you'd mentioned, Jarrell was like, you know, well, I keep forgetting he's only 19. Uh, you know, and the fact that they're on their second date. You know, when you when you finally get to that point and you you see her say that and you go back the four or five pages to where it begins and he's like, this is great, this is great, this is great, this is great. I can't believe we're here. I finally made it. Like, he, I mean, his eyes are bulging out. He is freaking out. You know, uh, Zane, do you know where we're going? Who does it? This is the Hall of Champions. Every kid with a swoop bike knows this place inside and out. It's the greatest speeder bike course anyone had ever imagined. Around. Everybody who's big is written here. I mean, like. He is fanboying out, and it's a moment that I just love. Like, that's what I love the most about this series overall is that when John Jackson Miller plays with these characters and gives them things like this, like he really fleshes it out. And and Zade's character just the the life that that Ching brings to the characters. You know, of course, we're at the point where Brian Ching has taken over these three issues, and Ching's art for me that is the quintessential look. For everything you know when i first grabbed my comics and opened them up for this series it was brian ching's artwork so that became the default for me you know when i think of zane carrick i think of zane drawn by ching uh and so seeing him you know freaking out and he's like oh 
what luck we're just in time like he's all the way around he is freaking out i mean this is this is exactly me when i was at star wars celebration anaheim with my family like they're all like just being towed along and i was just on cloud nine and i just i love it i mean and the way it plays out with everything that's going on i mean he's trying to absorb in the the adventure of it all the action and stuff and, and you're right Jarrell is calculating she's kind of tearing it apart like she's looking at it in the opposite eyes than him and and you can see that just in the way that you know their body stuff you know and they're sitting in there uh he goes they call it dueling duros you know and he's got this big old smile on his face and she doesn't she's like they're fighting i thought it was a race you know and and of course you know zane's trying to explain to her how it's all in good fun you know that kind of stuff but that's where the whole plot with the goddle really comes in you know i mean what you don't find out in that message, what we'll find out in the next issue and stuff, the true meaning of what's going on here in, in the pits and what's going on with the people that are, that are you know, competing, uh, the fact that there are slaves and where these slaves are coming from. Uh, and, and that's the other shoe dropping. And it's like at that point, the last page especially, it's like setting up the big shoe drop. You know, now we know that, that Zane's not just able to have fun. He's actually going to have to, you know, work to keep someone else alive, somebody that that's you know, not prepared. And then as we move into issue two, we're going to find out why that little kid Goddle is not so prepared. And I, I love the way that everything in there is, is working itself into the story. Still, it's like, by the time we get to the, to the third issue of this, I feel like it all comes back again and it all makes sense. Like we're starting to get to that point where, where the stories are kind of like flaying out and you know that there's little bits and pieces to each thread that we haven't quite figured out what it goes to. But by the time we get done, we're like, Oh, it's all one tapestry again. I love this. Yeah, this is where we are going to start to see things weave back together. It's going to start to feel like this is part of a broader arc, whereas the last couple of arcs in this trade paperback didn't really feel like that. It does feel kind of strained. I mean, three issues to get where we're going with this seems a little excessive. But it does manage to set up what is to come well by the time we get to the last issue. So we're in the second issue here, and we catch it up, catch up with them in the middle of one of these dual races, and Zane... And Aubin managed to survive their bout, and then we have uh, basically Gothar and Roland fighting out in another one, and they managed to take out their competition, so they get to advance as well. Meanwhile, Jarell is basically just back on the ship, and she's having a strange dream. This is one of those things that actually does play forward, it seems. We see her jumping down in one of those same space suits as from the Jedi Covenant vision. He's, she's jumping down into the broken ceiling, back from when Ranate died, of the Terrace Temple. And inside, she ignites Zane's yellow lightsaber and is surrounded by Malak, a.k.a. Alex Quingar Gesimus, and Roland, and Demigol, right? The mad scientist Mandalorian from back in Flashpoint that's going to be a big part of how this series continues to play out. Lord Adaska... And they're all saying stuff like, uh, you know, what you are, what you're meant to be, what you hide inside. Uh, you haven't told us the truth, etc., etc. And we find that Zane is in cuffs as a prisoner, and he's being held by someone who we can't see who's in shadow who appears to be a woman. We will find out more about her and her place in the vision as we get towards the end of this arc, but... Suffice to say, that is a slaver woman named Shantique in that vision who Jarrell knows, but the others don't. So it's just sort of a, a shadowed, hidden figure here. I gotta say, I really like the way this dream sequence worked. I don't think at the time I would have known what the heck was going on. But now, having read the entire series, looking back on it, it makes perfect sense 
who it is that's there, right? Malik representing the whole Force-sensitive side because he was one who had talked to her about the Force before. Roland and his role in this, uh, pushing for her, although not actually Roland. Demigol, a huge part of this, though at this point we don't know why Demigol is a big part of this yet. Uh, Adaska, uh, the guy that talked about her being an offshoot and how she was engineered and whatnot. Um, the slaver being involved and so on and so on. The whole thing really sort of plays out well in terms of maybe not so much foreshadowing as giving us a sense of of what all's going on with Jarail and how different elements are going to finally start to come together for her. I think probably the sh most shocking part being, why the heck is Demigol there? But by this point, there were a lot of fan theories that, wait, Roland isn't Roland, Roland is Demigol. Which will turn out, of course, this is the spoiler part of the show, so we can talk about it. Um, eventually, we will find out that is true. That's why Demigol's in the vision. That's why Roland isn't acting like Roland. That's why there's such an obsession with her and the Force abilities, though there'll be even more to that later as the true identity of Demigol himself is revealed. But I like the vision sequence. It plays out better than a lot of vision sequences that tend to be very vague. This is vague enough, but still you can sort of take clues out of what you're seeing. And I like how you just, you know, you drop that one spoiler and then tiptoed around the other four. <laughs> like, you know, you know, listeners, we're looking out for you. There's still a lot here. Like he's hinted at it and we're not really going to go into what's going on with Jarrell too much, but yes, there's a lot of really cool things. I think the Shantique character was one, like when we get to the reveal of her, I was like, Whoa. Uh, but as of right now, when I'm going back on the reread, knowing what I know about all that stuff, Seeing Jarell's character doing the things she's doing, at the time I read it on the first one, I was scratching my head wondering what was going on. Now it's like, oh, it makes sense. You're, you know, what you're seeing is her kind of being aloof and kind of back. It's more like she's calculating now and she's thinking and 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 trying to stay one step ahead of things. And and they're all things that when you're reading it on your first time through, you had no clue were there. And I, I think that's the one cool thing. I think this panel and and this whole volume seven really put aside the doubt for those people that thought that Roland might not have been Demigol. Cause I think at this point, like the fan theory out there was pretty solid. Most people thought it. And by the time you got to this issue, those people were like, it's, it's him. It's him. I'm, I'm, I'm convinced, you know? And I was still on the fence. Like I, I was like, okay, yeah, I see what you guys are saying, but what if it's not, you know, I was like in that we could have been somebody else. And yeah, I was in denial, man, big time. Um, I, I don't know. There's so many different angles about what's going on in here and the vision sequence that I really liked. I like the fact that, you know, he's like when Zane is in the shadow, he's like, Jarrell. And then all of a sudden he lifts up the chains. He's like, how could you? She's like, oh, Zane, I, I, you, you know, I like, again, it's that aspect of what she knows that's at play. That's not even in the, in the written word here that like, because I know what's going to happen all the way through the end of the series, I go back to this and her, you like the reaction she's having to who that is and what it means in the vision. I, I don't know. I really get a kick out of it all. So we move on to see Zane uh, using LB's recording ability to play back the real message that Gothar said about the slaves that was cut off, of course, and then covered up by the franchise. Zane is shocked that there are slaves in the franchise. Um, and LB makes an interesting comment. You know, I don't understand, right? Organics own droids. What's the utility of owning other organics? What else can slaves provide? And Jarrell, as she's walking out, says, you know, simple, entertainment value. Good night, Zane. I hope you can help them. And you can see, again, this whole 
Jarrell withdrawing, but you think it's just because of the vision when really there's more to it. You know, when we talk about, you know, Zane in the vision with the, the, the chains on him and the woman holding the end of the chains, it's going to play a role as we get to the end of this specific arc. Zane then is talking with Gothar about their chances of survival. Why doesn't he just speak out? Why doesn't he just leave? Well, he can't. He's a franchise player. He's not a free agent. And he can't even help his son. His son is having all kinds of issues because of sensing, you know, the energies and whatnot of all the different people around him and not being able to shut it out. And you would think Gothar, being a Gothal, also could help his son. But she, her, the gang leader, they play as CinemaSense calls it the pronoun gang, um... This mysterious woman who's behind the slaving ring that is supplying the franchise, uh, the one we will later find out is Shantique, who's appearing in shadow there in the vision, cut off his horns. Uh, when uh, Very early on when she just got angry with him, and because of that, this heinous barbaric act, he had to learn how to survive on his other senses when he was very, very young, but... With Aubin's mother dead, that means that his father really is the only person who should be able to teach him how to, how to block out the senses, but he can't. So it's actually Zane who uses his teachings in how to block out all the things you're sensing from the Force to be able to focus and helps teach Aubin how to do the same thing, um, which is a nice moment of Zane being able to help someone with his Jedi training, even though he's not really considering himself a Jedi. But we get this great moment, again, pushing the storyline forward as far as Roland slash Demigol and his obsession with Jarrell, saying, um, I should be able to travel openly with you now, Carrick. Let us win this and be finished with the place. And I saw you teach the Gotal boy. That was a force technique. Why would you teach a stranger when your own friend needs your help? Jarrell could learn the force if only you'd... Wrong place and wrong time, Roland. And besides, she didn't ask. Right? Roland is just pushing and pushing. Jarrell hasn't really asked for that type of help. We then find that Jervo Thalion, right, who we saw earlier in the series as a villain who is a rival to Griff, um, he recognizes Zane. He knows that everybody must be there. Once them taken out there again, talking about the mysterious she, the mysterious woman behind things, and decide, well, you know, we can take them out and make sure they cause no trouble for us or for the slaving ring, which we'll find in the next issue is called the Crucible. Um, Accidents happen. It may be a non-lethal competition, but uh, accidents happen, and we'll make sure that they get taken out. And that's the way to prove to Marn Hieroglyph who the real operator is. Of course, Marn just happens to be spying on Bardron and Jervo as they're having this conversation and says as he's up in the vents, That's right, you sleazy tub of goo. It's on now. And <laughs> it makes for an interesting ending of ratcheting up the stakes again. Now not only does Zane have to protect Aubin for Gothar, but now there is this intention for this non-lethal race to be rigged, to be lethal, which we see plenty of times in other stories, right? You know, hey, it's a non-lethal sport. We're going to do something to make it lethal to up the stakes. Uh, uh, ooh, aren't the bad guys so bad and conniving? But it's that last line for me that kind of has me sit back and go, hmm. Um, it's the same thing. I, I want to say it was in... Was it in Dark Disciple? There's a, it's a recent story that I was reading. Uh, no, may, maybe I was reading. Maybe it was something else. But there, there's a there's a sci-fi story that seemed a little out of place to me because you got a character saying, "You got this. I got this," and, and that's just something that's sort of a more modern American slang way of saying things. Same with this. I would not have expected a Star Wars character to say, "It's on now." Something to that effect. Yes. <laughs> 
But the colloquial, it's on now, doesn't sound Star Wars to me. And it kicked me right out of the issue in the last line. See, for me, I, I thought that was a perfect Griff moment, though. I mean, this guy's a rival. He's already kind of raised his game against him. And now he's like, I got the dirt. <laughs> just, I like the transition of Griff in this regard from Zane. You know, Zane is slowly affecting to the point like like even he's talking about we finally got a legitimate target you know like we finally somebody that deserves it like he's actually thinking outside the box and now he's like not only does this guy deserve it but like i have like like i know this guy's into shady stuff and now i've proven it you know like i don't know i for me that was a great moment i i loved it for griff i mean it plays well but it's just the phrasing of it it'd be like if they were going up against authorities on terrace and the character said you know oh hell no nah, bruh hands up don't shoot He's all, he's like, get her done. Yeah, you're like, that's that's a little too colloquial modern pop culture, uh, modern America to really fit in a galaxy far, far away. But maybe that's just me. <laughs> a bunch of Padawans ignite their lightsabers in the citizen. Oh, snap! It's just like in one thing that is in Dark Disciple. There's a lot of use of hell in Dark Disciple. Go to hell. What the hell were you thinking? I know hell is in Star Wars. We see, you know, I'll see you in hell. Yeah! And all that stuff in The Empire Strikes Back, but it just seems odd for what the hell, where the hell, etc., etc., to be in Star Wars to the degree that it's in, in Dark Disciple. Uh, and Less I can't imagine maybe... that being on television in Clone Wars. That must have been uh, Christy Golden adding that into the script. Well, unless maybe uh, Han's uh, Nine Hells of Corellia are still canon. Perhaps, or maybe there's just one now, and it's canon. We don't know, but at least with <laughs> Han mentioning it in Empire... It's part of canon. It just it feels like it's modern American phrasing being thrown into what's supposed to be a galaxy far, far away. And sometimes it makes sense. And granted, they're all speaking English slash basic, but I don't know. This, sometimes the slang carrying over is bizarre. I mean, at least Zane didn't look up when they walked into Jervo's world and saw all those screens of the games playing. He didn't when he freaked out and he was like all giddy. He didn't go, OMG. <laughs> or something that's sort of what it feels like to me having the it's on anyway the so, squee moment the squee moment so we pick up with part three which is issue 41 the last issue in this trade paperback still by john jackson miller still with art by brian ching very much like the previous two issues and jerail is there undercover and she's flirting with the composer who does the score that gets played over all of the matches and over the ending and whatnot, over the, the champions being announced and whatnot. And she manages to pickpocket his little data cube that's got his music on it so that they can reprogram it by putting in a different message, which we find out at the end is the actual message that Gothar tried to get out during his last victory speech about the slaves and whatnot. So it's going to allow them to get that message out one way or the other. They're there basically undercover through the ring, uh, the next match begins. The finals match begins. We see, you know, a lot of just, you know, racing around, taking out their enemies. The key things being that they're finding that their weapons aren't working, uh, that the weapons being used against them are overpowered. Yes, the plan to try to kill them is in full force. But most of the issue is just a big chunk of the action of the swoop race slash fight, the duel itself. Until finally... Uh, there's a moment in which, according to plan, Gothar manages to smash through a viewpane window and get up into an upper area 
Uh, like, hey, uh, play some music. Play something to act like this is part of the show. So he hits play, and what's it play? It plays the speech. So everything's kind of coming down on Jervo. People are angry. They're trying to pull him down. Uh, they crown Roland the winner just as a way of saying, hey, look, we've got a winner. Everybody look down here. Hello. Stop paying attention to what's going on there. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain and so on. And it really it comes to sort of a quick end given that so much of it is just the action of the, the duel itself, of the swoop race and such itself. But it's the end that makes the most difference in the grand scheme of things here uh, to the broader story arcs. We find that now Roland is going to be able to go out in public if he wants to because he's thought of as a, as a hero of the races. The armor is just his shtick. He now has the Gothar special, so now they get this really nice souped-up swoop bike as part of their arsenal. And they've managed to smuggle out Aubin and Gothar inside a trash container so they can now be safe. And they're planning on trying to get them in touch with people who will get Aubin, the kid, the help he needs with this whole Gothal census thing. Except then Jarrell comes out of the ship, having wiped off all of her makeup and everything, and Gothar sees her with those symbols, those blue tattoo-looking symbols that she's had on her face the entire series that we've never really known were anything other than simple decoration or perhaps just something because, you know, she was the, what do they call it, an offshoot. Right, of yeah. her race, thanks to all the, the manipulation that had gone on. But he freaks out. He says, keep away. You stay away from me, from us. You can't be here. And Roland pulls his blaster. Why can't she be here? Because she's an offshoot? No, because of those, the marks. Don't you know what they are? Don't you know what she is? And he walks. You know, Gothar, stop. What are you talking about? Everything you've done has been a lie, Carrick. I never want to see your face again. If you're the person you say you are, you'd never be around her. And Jarrell runs right back into the ship. She's freaking out, going towards her room. Uh, Zane races in, you know, Jarrell, Jarrell, come back. What was that about? Gothar acted like he knew you. I've never met him before, but he knows the marks. It's been so long. I hope no one knew what they meant anymore. Otherwise, I wouldn't have stayed another minute. I, I never knew what your tattoos meant, Jarrell. Before Camper found you... Were you a slave? And then comes the bombshell. No, Zane. I was a slaver. Good night, and she closes the door. And we get a final epilogue of sorts where Jerbo and Bardron, from the races and whatnot, are meeting with the leader of the slavers. Uh, they finally mention the slaver group by name, the Crucible, and the she they've been hinting at is there, and her name is Shantique. We see Jerbo get killed... For his failures, for putting them in harm's way, we learn that the tattoos are called the Flames of the Crucible. And say, well, you know, when she showed up, we saw the flames, we thought she was with you. She was, as Shantique says, as they finally reveal her, but not anymore. You can't hide from me, Jarrell. And you, and anyone who helps you, will pay. And we've got this new character, Shantique, who is a, apparently a Zeltron, dressed pretty much like Emma Frost. I think it's probably the best way to put it. In other words, <laughs> yes. she is she is a slaver leader fighting in basically lingerie or armor for women from any medieval-styled uh, fantasy RPG that doesn't quite get the fact that armor is supposed to actually protect you. And she's using a whip. So think of like a Zeltron meets Emma Frost meets Lumaya merged into one character and given a final uh, one image to reveal what she actually looks like that... Again, seems like it should be from, like, the Marvel swimsuit special. 
Um, <laughs> there as the reveal of the character. Next, the Mask of Revan. And oddly enough, it will go from this into a storyline that is much more focused on Revan and his mask than it is focused on our main characters for a little bit. But this is laying the seeds of what's coming next. The rest of this series will be about Jarrell and her background, beginning with this investigation of her and the whole slaver issue. See, I remember that scene threw me so off. Like, I, I love the, the big reveal where she says, where Jarrell says she was a slaver. You know, that felt like the end. And then, like you said, you, you had this epilogue moment. And I misread it. You know, when Shatik goes... Was she here? Here and gone. She wore the flames of the crucible. I thought she was you. I dropped the word with. And I was all like, then I, I go on, she was, but not anymore. And I was all like, what? Because she does look a lot like Jarrell. So I was like, what's going on? Like, I remember at first, like, I didn't put together that she was a Zeldron. I just figured like, okay, they must be doing something weird with these, you know, these, these creatures here. These Arcanians are being just mutilated you know like all you, sorts of colors there were offshoots and now there's offshoots of offshoots yes so so that was kind of you know i first read it that's what i had thought was going down for some reason the longest time i thought that her and jarell were you know like these clone sisters that one had a different color skin because they look so alike uh but yeah you know finding out that it's with you as part of the organization and all that it, it changed things i liked the dynamic there I think for me overall with this entire volume seven, you do get kind of a sense that it is more about Jarrell at this point. You know, they give you a heck of a lot more of her backstory. They start feeding you these little tidbits of things that you've kind of gotten the feeling that you were never going to get any background on. You know, you'd finally accepted that the, that was just going to be a mystery. You know, we're never going to know what Yoda's species is named kind of thing. Uh, and then all of a sudden, bam, here comes the little tidbits and stuff. And, I think for me, as as the KOTOR series came to its its number 50 end, those mysteries being solved were some of the most satisfying things for me. And having them start to kind of creep through and start to finally bleed through into the main plots of the story, I got really excited. And I think that's probably why I enjoyed this more than, than probably you did. Because for me, I felt like we were ramping up to something, you know, and I was really getting a kick out of that. I think what gets me is the fact that it's multiple story arcs. I think if this, and I think, wow, they spent this entire trade paperback setting up things that are to come. But a lot of series do that. Heck, this series has done that before with six-issue story arcs that are just there really to set up what's to come. But I look at it, and it doesn't feel like it's only six issues to me, because I was reading these as singles, and to me, when I look at this, this isn't one trade paperback. This is three story arcs. Yeah. Right? This is profit motive and faithful execution and dueling ambitions all to set this up. If it was one story arc, perhaps I wouldn't feel like it was so much fluff, even if it was the same ratio of fluff content, so to speak, versus the stuff that really seems to matter in the grand scheme of things. I don't know. It just, it feels lesser than the rest of the series. This is a fantastic comic series for the most part, but this part feels like one of the uh, the down points in it, just as far as has how entertaining it was and how much I cared about what I was seeing. I was intrigued by the end of this arc, but after six issues, multiple months of this, I was wondering if the series really had longevity to it or if Vindication should have been the end. I like where it's going to go, but they only have nine issues in which to go there now. Uh, and it does seem like it ramps up very quickly after this point, which is, which is good. Um, my last comment, I guess, would be, before we move into talking about covers, is uh, back to the design of Shantique. 
it is kind of frustrating, again, to see a female character who is supposed to be this major nemesis, or a major heroic character, as the case may be, depending on which character you're looking at, that is given this over-sexualized look. It looks like Marvel Comics in the era of Rob Liefeld and Jim Lee, before they jumped over to Image, were designing the character, or them at the beginning of their Image tenure, designing the character. Why is this slaver lady basically wearing lingerie? We will find that she is an insecure character and uses the sexuality to an extent as a weapon. So as it goes along, it starts to make more sense what she's wearing. But at the time, I remember groaning that it seemed like they were just going for that stereotypical, hey, most comic readers are boys, let's give them some tits to look at thing. Uh, yeah. I remember the thought, and it still popped into my head this time, that her organization was super, super secret, right? The, the Crucible was not to be discussed. They talked about her as she instead of using her name. It was very, very hush-hush, which made me think her operation, it wasn't just top secret. It wasn't just ultra secret. It was Victoria's secret. Because <laughs> it completely fits the character as we see her. I'm glad they wind up eventually giving us a rationale for it. Certainly much more rationale for her costume being over-sexualized than, say, throwing Ahsoka in back in the Clone Wars with a boob window and before that running around in basically a mini skirt and a tube top as a 14-year-old. But it's, it's going to constantly be an issue with Star Wars, especially in comic form. This sense that if it's a female character, a lot of times to make the character appear awesome, the character must be over-sexualized. Thankfully, Jarrell didn't have that happen much in any of these issues, even when she was undercover trying to schmooze up to the composer. But then you've got Chantique that sort of takes it in the complete opposite direction right back towards, again, she looks like Emma Frost would be characterized in most of, say, the 90s and early 2000s X-Men comics. And I would like to think we can expect better from Star Wars most of the time. No, you're dead on with the Emma Frost. I, I think, too, the other thing I like about the fact is that they didn't just bank on her being Zeltron. I mean, granted, I missed that the first time through, but her being a Zeltron, her wearing over-sexualized clothes kind of makes more sense. I mean, they're an over-sexualized species, uh, you know, with their little pheromone powers, and it seems to be unlike the Follines, these ones are actually using those powers for a little brown chicken brown cow. And so, you know, sorry, did you say regard, brown chicken brown cow? That's a, yeah. a little bit different. Yeah, I, I don't know where I just picked that up. I, I was think, watching some I TV think, show. I think that's a Chick-fil-A commercial, isn't it? That <laughs> could be. Brown but, chicka, brown cow. Uh, <laughs> but I was just like, I don't know. I mean, I mean, right now you're, you're looking at her you're like, whoa, what the hell is she wearing kind of thing? And I don't know. I mean, you kind of get this question of like, is Zeltron supposed to be really hot? Because like, it, you know, well, you got. Twilight slave dancers wearing practically nothing at all. These species are about the same when it comes to the amount of clothing that they put on. And it makes me stop when I think about that that scene in uh, episode one when they're like, you're from a desert planet. It's really cold in space. And I'm just like, hey, uh, Chantique, it's really cold in space. You might want to cover up. Ah, second thought, I'm enjoying the show. Yeah, I don't know. I think that I mean, this is one of those where at the time it was it was somewhat jarring, somewhat disjointed. But eventually there is a reason. It's not that you can't sexualize characters. It's that you really ought to make sure that there's a reason behind it at some point. Like Leia and the whole metal bikini thing became an icon. There was some criticism of it at the time, but this was Jabba the Hutt debasing her and making her into a slave girl. It made sense to do that. It was kind of over the top, but it made sense and then became the icon later. It's a matter of just... 
there needs to be a reason for it. But then again, I'm somebody who, having read all the Game of Thrones novels, uh, or A Song of Ice and Fire, and gone through and watched all the shows so far, I would still argue that a lot of the, the gratuitous nudity and sexuality in those shows and those books, it's just there in a lot of cases for the shock value and could have been done more tastefully and more creatively if sometimes it was less show, more hint. Uh, which may make me just a prudish American, but I don't know. There's a part of me that says that there's something to be said for always making sure there's a reason for what you're doing. It's the same thing if you want to make armor that's awesome or, or give a character a lightsaber that works in an unusual way. Give us a reason for it. Why does Mace Windu get the only purple lightsaber in the prequels? Well, the Legends continuity gave us a rationale for why. Now that that's gone and it's just plain canon... Maybe there isn't a reason other than just Samuel L. Jackson wanted it that way, right? Um, thankfully, eventually. See, see, yeah. here's the thing. Every other Jedi that holds Mace's lightsaber, the lightsaber is either blue or green. But Mace holds it, it turns purple. He grabs Yoda, it turns purple. It's like, hey, Mace, what's going on? It's my color. Maybe it's like a mood lightsaber. It changes colors depending <laughs> on the attitude of the person holding it. Or perhaps it's just that the lightsaber is racist and won't show blue or green for a black <laughs> Jedi racist lightsaber bastard anyway um so suffice to say give us a reason for it and the fact that she's a zeltron and some of the things we find with her later and her broken psyche i think it works for shantique but it was very jarring initially getting to the end of that and going oh they've introduced the white queen who happens to be red Oh uh, yes, I I mean I I say for me I've really enjoyed this one. Like it, it's not one of the crowning pinnacles of awesomeness, but I think it serves the story. I think it serves the characters. Uh, you know, one character we really didn't mention much, but Elby actually had a role in that last heist. Uh, you know, he actually was was doing things. He took out another droid. Like it was nice to see him back in the action. Up until this point, I thought for some reason that he had like been left behind with Camper or something. So it was nice to see that get drawn back in. Slissix actually had a role at some point in the earlier stuff, though he didn't really have much of a role later. Uh, but I liked that everyone was being used. We got the new ship. There was a reason for why that ship was there, and that ship, I believe, is going to play even more roles down the road uh, that add up to the story. I don't know. For me, it, it, you know, you mentioned it before with the whole uh, Babylon 5 aspect. You know, John Jackson Miller is really a master at his craft, and when it comes to this kind of stuff, you know, he's proven it. Uh, you know, what I would love to see from him is something along the same style of what he's done with the KOTOR comics and that interweaving, but do it with the books, you know, now that he's writing in the canon and stuff. I would love to see something where if he puts out a second book and it kind of finds ways to tie into a new dawn in the ways that he's classically known for. You know, that's the one thing about canon right now that I'm really, really, really missing out on. All the characters, the only through points are the canon characters themselves, you know, the Darth Vader's and the, the Tarkin's and things like that. We don't have very many characters that were introduced in the books that are being picked up again later and, you know, and drug around in that regard that are in the books. And then, oh, hey, later we came into the series. I believe, what is it, uh, Zare uh, from Rebels? He's about the only character that we have that was introduced in the books first that then has a carried on role in the Rebels show itself. Uh, but I would love to see John Jackson Miller do something similar like that in a book form. You know, I mean, he's, he's shown me with with Knights of the Old Republic that he can create an era that just captures my attention and has me salivating for more. Uh, the way he presents it is just in a way that really clicks with me. You know, I really, really enjoy this series and Legacy. You know, those are my two favorite comic series out of almost all of them. And, and you know, it, it's the way that they're interlaced with the other stuff. 
Uh, you know, they just do a really good job. Maybe it's just something about the name John. Need a good Star Wars writer? Go to the John. Wait, <laughs> I don't think that's what they meant. Now, before we wrap things up, we're going to hit our covers. Uh, we've got our six single covers. We've got our trade paperback. And I believe we have two omnibus covers that I wasn't aware of. But thank you, Nathan. Uh, our first one is 36, A New Day, A New Enemy. And we've got Mr. No Neck uh, holding Jarrell by her throat. And again, I go back to that that species, the Shevins. I just, that's a species I would love for canon to forget all about. Let us not ever have to see this character again as a character. Let, if you're going to bring him in and anything, you're going to use that model. Just let it be a background character like Lucas did originally. Okay, let's stop giving these characters their own little moments to shine because honestly, they look like a toilet with legs. Uh, I don't dig it. Racist. Yes. Actually, you know what? It, you know what makes me think when I see Effontmon or any of these Chevin? Does it uh, not remind you of Cherry from Pee-wee's Playhouse? Oh, my God. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Pass the popcorn. You were, you were, oh, he, I was like, you were talking about the girls. No, he, he's still freaking laughing. He muted himself and can't stop. I can't. I can't. <laughs> the chair. Oh my god. I now I'm seeing him is in a red tune. He's like he's like the Aaron Venture now. <laughs> it just all read it out. Oh god. Make it, make it, take it back. <laughs> okay, okay. The secret word is crucible. Ah! Ah! <laughs> yeah, not not a fan of that cover at all. Uh you know, I mean I don't know. He, as a new enemy, I don't think that uh, No Neck really. I don't know. He didn't feel like the enemy. He felt more like a patsy. Uh, let's see. We go to 37. Uh, 37, it's the cover that they used for the trade paperback itself, uh, where you see Jedi Knight, Malcolm Reynolds, fighting off the Sith droids. I mean, uh, Zane Carrick is fighting off the Sith droids. Uh, you know, I, I like this one a little bit. Uh, you know, I say a little bit because he doesn't quite look like Zane. He does look more like Nathan Fillion. Uh, but I like the action of it. Renegade to the rescue. Okay. Digging on that. I like the blue shades that they used. Okay. I'm, I'm on. Uh, 38 is an interesting one because I like what they did with the Knights of the Old Republic. It's like the title itself just looks like they traced it. Everything else is white background. You see Zane pinned to the floor. It's Brian Ching's artwork that I just love. And you got LB having him pinned to the ground and it says a hidden enemy revealed. I like what that implies, you know, because like at this point, LB, there's so much going on with that character that I'm like, why is this character still around? And then you see something like that. I'm like, oh. Hey, is there something, there's something I don't know? Is this, we going a route here? This looks, this looks really interesting. Uh, we get to 39, we got high speed, higher stakes. And we got like a Trandoshan jumping from like what looks to be maybe a speeder bike that's been blown up towards Zane on a speeder bike. Zane's got a gun, really gritty in the style. Uh, this kind of more reflects the, uh, the second of the three story arcs that were in this trade. Um, I don't know. The, the, the trans ocean just looks really weird. He's kind of got like a, uh, Oh, a Kyle Cartan kind of look to his armor almost. Um, and then from 39, we go into 40, which is of course, I, I think this one's probably one of my favorites and I'm kind of more bummed that this one wasn't the cover of the trade. Uh, it's got the Knights of the old Republican white, a nightmare come true. And it's got, Jarrell, she's wearing the armor that Zane had in the beginning of the series. She's got his yellow lightsaber. And it's hard to say. It looks like it's Rohan's character behind her, but it could be 
Demigol. There's not much shown, but there's enough of one tube coming out that I really think it's Rohan's character. But I, I like the menace of that one and the way that Jarell's character, like the shade, uh, the shadow from the lightsaber, like covers her right side of her face and her hair is dripping down. So it creates a shadow. Her eyes kind of disappear and her eyes are looking off in that other direction. Something about that one is really creepy in a good way. I really dig on that one. Uh, 41, we've got impossible adversary and it looks like the little goddle kid the auburn or Aubin, whatever his name is and he's fighting off uh this big troll looking monster duties it's one of the ones that we see in the fight in itself in all the action and stuff like that very nondescript here i mean it, it's just kind of like a, oh okay yeah there it is uh and then from there we got our trade which like i said it was that uh number 37 again with the omnibuses uh we've got volume two which you said that's the one that collects the first two stories from this is that correct all right, so that one, that one's got one of my favorite covers of Kotor in general. Uh, it, it's an odd one because I believe it was Zane in the red Imperial type armor, but in the cover it doesn't quite look so much like Zane. It looks almost more like it's a girl, uh, and she's fighting off other other people. But that was always one of those images like when I remember collecting Knights of the Old Republic images, that was one that I would always go out and make sure to find because I always dug that one. Uh, and then in volume three, it's, uh, I can't remember which cover it was, but this one I believe is an actual cover as well. You got Zane, he's kind of got blasters kind of jumping around him. He's doing one of these little high kind of punch in the air and his other fist is off to the side like he's getting ready to come and roundhouse you with a right. I don't know. I like the art on that one as well. Really good stuff, man. What, what's some of your favorites here? Well, you know, I mean, they switch between artists here. So we got Dan Scott do the first two, or does the first two, and then it's uh, Brian Ching himself, which is odd because it's an issue where he doesn't do the interior artwork. And then we have, I think it's Daryl Mandrick, I think is the guy's name, who does all the ones for Dueling Ambitions. What gets me about these in some cases is it's not something we see in the story, like uh, A New Day, A New Enemy for 36 with uh, Nunk holding Jarell by her throat. Okay, that sort of might make sense for the next issue, though not entirely. It doesn't really make sense at all for this issue because they don't get captured and fall into his hands until either the end of the issue or between the issues, as we talked about last time, where it doesn't quite flow exactly between the issues. But it's a decent cover. Uh, not a big fan of Renegade to the Rescue for 37, where Zane is just cutting down the droids because, again, it doesn't look like him. And... Again, that's not something that happens in that issue. If anything, that's what happened at the end of the previous issue. And yet, here it is for issue number 37. Uh, a hidden enemy revealed, number 38, with LB. Kind of cool, the idea that LB could be a secret enemy aboard attacking Zane, except that's not what happens in that story either. So, what the hell are they doing? You get to the ones for dueling ambitions, and they're better. Uh, I do like the darker aspect to them, the more gritty aspect to them. Uh, I like the one with the Transocean jumping down to attack Zane, but I have trouble looking at it now without laughing because I had a conversation about this at one point with somebody about how his arms are so gigantic and the Transocean's head is so small. The thought process was, boy, this guy must be on steroids. I wonder what else has shrunk. <laughs> or maybe he lost his head and his head's just regrowing back. It's just regrowing it's back, yeah. <laughs> That's why it's so small. I'm sorry. Um, skipping 40 for a second, 41. Decently drawn, but you've got this Mantellian giant, I believe it's supposed to be, and then Aubin, the little Gotal standing there. There's very little about that that says anything about the story itself. Oddly enough, you could see that type of encounter perhaps on the inside during the race, 
But you take out the Star Wars logo at the top of the Knights of the Old Republic logo, and that could be the cover of any generic sci-fi fantasy story. Mm -hmm. They would not scream anything about Star Wars at all. Somebody looking at this cover wouldn't know what the heck they're looking at without the big Star Wars going over the top of it. Uh, He's on Dagobah! (laughs) Yeah, it looks like it. The best one, hands down, as you said, number 40, A Nightmare Come True with Jeriel there. That has to have been a photo reference of some kind because Mm -hmm. she looks very photorealistic here, and you don't see that a lot with Star Wars covers in this particular era. So it's nice to see them try to do a photorealistic mask behind her, a photorealistic Mm -hmm. character. Um, It could have been a shot taken straight out of a film version of this, and that is excellent. I think it's it's a little bit jarring because she doesn't look quite how I think I would have expected her to look if photorealistic, just slightly. But Mm -hmm. it's very well done, and I'd like to see more of that. I would love it if Star Wars comics... We'll go for more, hey, let's give you photorealistic interpretations of these characters that you've only seen in comic art or heard of in prose novels so you have a much better visual to go with. Because I'm a very visual yeah. storytelling, visual reading type of guy. And sometimes it's jarring, for instance, reading something like, say, Dark Disciple. And I'm picturing Ventress the way that I pictured her, except with hair, um, from the Clone Wars. And I'm picturing a lot of the other characters as if they're from the Clone Wars, especially Dooku, for instance, because that's the atmosphere that we're getting. But I'm picturing Quinlan as he appeared in the Republic comics. And when it comes to Anakin and Obi-Wan, I'm going back and forth between picturing them as they were in the Clone Wars versus seeing them the way that they were in the films. I'd like to have sort mm-hmm. of a consistent visual repertoire to go through to be able to picture these things mentally. And this type of cover is incredible at providing that type of mental image we just don't get it nearly often enough so kudos to that cover Uh, he did a bang up job yeah daryl mandrake is the one that did that one and i i it's kind of a shame that that one wasn't the one they used for the trade paperback because that one is glorious man just simply glorious Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you guys and gals once again for hanging out with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division of Podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SWB on Films, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. Our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans, so if you have any Star Wars and or Legends questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention to you our sponsors, Audible. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash starwarsreport, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. That's right, a free book. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars Expanding Universe or the canon one or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate because Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months, that's one year, with no questions asked. So, in this digital age, if you're thinking of making that switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. 
and Nathan saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds. That Shantique's outfit is actually a compliment to the pimp outfit that Slisk wore. Because they do kind of go together with the pimp. And no, it's a pimp named Slisk. Like a tribe called Quest. You say the whole thing. Pimp named Slisk. I don't know if you ever watch Boondogs. <laughs> no, but I was thinking Dave Chappelle as you said that. It sounded exactly like a Dave Chappelle. Cat, Cat Williams, he plays this character named a pimp named Slickback. And he's talking to the grandpa. He's like, well, the grandpa's all Mr. Slickback. He's like, no, bitch. It's a pimp named Slickback. You gotta say it like a tribe named Quest. It's in the whole thing. <laughs> wow. I think you're gonna have to explain that in the bloopers because people are gonna think that you're just being, you know, sexist or something. <laughs> and that we will. Oh, and there goes the fart. Oh. <laughs> the Kraken has been released. Uh, oh. I'm sitting here all gassy and I'm like, and I, I don't need to mute anymore. <laughs> okay. I feel better now. Woo. <laughs> yeah. Whistler's like, Whistler's not even going to say anything. You got to break out a chopper for that one. <laughs> Chopper's like, I got this. He chopped wind. Oh my god. And it's, oh, it's off. Oh. <laughs> better! Better! It's stagnant! You know, usually you don't smell your own. It's okay, but sometimes, <laughs> oh my god. That sounds like a bad Ooh. service. Come on in and try our smell your own. <laughs> it's fresh roasted daily. It's what the inside of that ship they found in, in a faithful execution probably smelled like when they got that. A bunch of dead that? bodies. <laughs> Oh, we got some standing water, but unfortunately one of them's right below a P-trap. <laughs> oh. oh, man. Yeah, we should be... Hang on, Jody's coming out of the bathroom and is going to squeak in the process. Huh? Okay, flush the toilet, let's go. I've... It's my turn to talk, so let's go. <laughs> I get the bird for my troubles. <laughs> Alright, but... You know, when the bird's from your wife, it's like the only bird that really matters. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. When the, he says when the bird's from your wife, it's the only bird that really matters. Oh, um, yeah. Over <laughs> sake, toilet. Finish, finish running. <laughs> oh, and now the damn phone. Son of a <laughs> Attack! It's my mom. I'll call her back. <laughs> She's calling about her computer, I'm sure. She just went and bought a new one. No, I said something about it. About it ringing. <laughs> okay, we done yet? Oh, and apparently the other computer must be recording because when she just talked, I heard it back. God. So yeah, the other me is. <laughs> it's chaos and pandemonium at the butler house. <laughs> Come on. Okay, so now I'm back. Yeah. Oh, that was a that was an, a great beginning. <laughs> great shade now. Okay, well, we were talking. Yes, Dark Disciple. Now, I'm not going to be doing spoiler free, so I'm going to drop down to. Actually, give me one second. I am going to grab. I want. I'm making sure I've got the omnibus thing pulled up because I want to tell people where they can find you as we get towards the end. But of course, that means having your. Wikipedia pulled up, which means what? 
pretty soon there'll be a random advertisement that will start playing for no fucking reason whatsoever. Do you have itchy balls? <laughs> Do you want itchy balls? <laughs> Spend some time with Griff and you'll get itchy balls. Trying to scroll down, but it keeps loading as I'm trying to scroll down, and it keeps not wanting to scroll. Damn it! Look at my chubby ball. Stick them in your mouth and suck them. I'm going through and rewatching all the old South Park. So it's in my head. <laughs> nice. There we go. Good lord. Oh, you got to be kidding. And of course, once I finally do find it. Oh, there we go. Okay, I was looking for where it had the thing about the omnibus, omnibus, omnibus editions. So we just covered 36, 37, 38, right? Yes. Okay, so this is actually part in one omnibus, part in the other. So let me, I want to say where you can find it. Okay. That's right, folks. Now, this trade paperback includes issues 36, 37. So we start. Uh, and we crack one off like the Kraken. I was having so much trouble trying to get out those last sentences with the burp forming behind them. See, I thought you were going to make a uh, Daenerys reference for Game of Thrones or something. Yeah, I mean, but that's based on old Roman stuff, too. Yeah. <laughs> Just saying. Although there is a dragon at the beginning of this. Thing. Oh, that's what I thought you were going to be like. Look, it's Drogo! So, we start... And... Zane is shocked by the fact that there are flags. There are flags. Well, I don't know what the <laughs> a flag is. <laughs> a flag leg. Franchise and slaves at the same time. That's that's what the Boltons eat at Thanksgiving. Let's have a flag. Give me the flag leg of a of a stock. Uh, you know they they just do a really good job. Maybe it's just someone with the name John. Need a good Star Wars writer? Go to the John. Wait, <laughs> I don't think that's what they meant. No, not at all. Or wait. Going back to Shantique and her look, Star Wars, it's all for the Johns. Get it? Because it makes her kind of frosted too. Ah, never mind. <laughs> Blooper. 